Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Patrick Barclay, the author and columnist, and Tony Hodson from The Coach's Voice. It's at times like these that the imagination runs riot. Will it be QPR revisited for Manchester City in their final game against Aston Villa next Sunday? Or will Steven Gerrard seize the moment and give Liverpool the chance to win the Premier League title? Talk about a narrative. That slip, eight years ago, writes itself, doesn't it? Karma, fate, call it what you wish. Logically, Liverpool will cut the gap to one point by winning at Southampton on Tuesday night. So, Tony, now, you're allowed to speak from the heart here. Assuming I have one. As a lifelong fan, (laughs) assuming you have one, as a lifelong fan, do you still believe? Yeah, definitely. As a cold-hearted, attempting to be impartial observer, uh, the odds are very much against Liverpool. But there is this sense of fate building, isn't there? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was surprised when I saw Riyad Mahrez step up to take the penalty yesterday. He's got previous for missing against Liverpool. Kevin De Bruyne has got previous for missing a penalty against Liverpool as well. So Mm. that's by no means the kind of clear-cut, poor decision that people think it is. But the fact that the penalty was saved, that they didn't wrap it up victory yesterday probably would have wrapped it up for them but but it didn't happen and, and suddenly there is a as you say there is everything points to, to to Villa going to Man City next week managed by Steven Gerrard with Philippe Coutinho impressing at the moment having just looked like he's moving well he is moving there permanently from in the summer Coutinho I think scored the winner didn't he against City in that in that what was deemed a title decider back in that 13-14 campaign before the Gerrard slip and assuming that Liverpool get the job done on Southampton against Southampton on Tuesday, which is, I mean, by no means guaranteed that. There's a lot of selection decisions that Klopp has to make for that game. But if Liverpool do go and get the win, then obviously that narrative that you just described will be ramped up ahead of the weekend. All common sense is that this Villa team shouldn't have enough to stop City getting the result they need. But crazy things have definitely happened, haven't they? Yeah, I suppose though, yeah, Pat, it is easy to overlook the character that, City have shown since that loss to, to Real Madrid, you know, there's been a an emphatic response to adversity, you know, pretty much typified by that, that second half comeback at West Ham, which should have actually gone one stage further, of course. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. I think that's why they are where they are. I mean, there's the mark of great teams. If you, if you look back at Manchester United under Alex Ferguson, and that may to any Manchester United supporter seem a long look back. The you know there was Fergie time and there was those fight backs and there was this sort of indomitability. I would never had 
<laughs> I never had any doubt. I would I would have been surprised if if Manchester City had crumbled. You don't get that good if if you go if you go if you allow a defeat, no matter how disheartening the circumstances of the Madrid one were to knock you off course, especially as, you know, that a little bit like Liverpool, Manchester City are very well drilled. They know what they're going to do. Tony, as a, a coaching um, expert, will know how important drilling, how important in the culture, how important instinctive football is for, for the resilience of a football team. And yeah, it's, I'm, I, I must, I'm not trying to be wise after the event, but it would have surprised me if Manchester City had not shown the resilience you mentioned. Yeah. You know, if you, th if you think about it, you know, you mentioned Kevin De Bruyne earlier, Tony, he's quietly putting together an outstandingly or another outstandingly influential season, isn't he? 15 league goals, his best return. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I know you mentioned the earlier miss, but if we're talking fate and everything else, I would have probably trusted him with that penalty. Yeah, particularly on current form. I know we, we talk, you know, there was a, there was a thread on, on, on Twitter yes, uh, yesterday put live about, about Jurgen Klopp's process for the penalties ahead after, at the end of the FA Cup final. There is a process here at all of these clubs. Certainly, you know, it, it seems crazy, doesn't it, that the coach that we all know Pep Guardiola is, who doesn't leave anything to chance. He is the absolute king of detail in every way, shape or form. And it seems crazy that Manchester City should have this really questionable record with penalties where even, even game to game, you wouldn't even know necessarily who's going to step up and take it. You know, Liverpool are the obvious example because we're talking about them. But if Mo Salah's on the pitch, he will take them. That's that's just the way it is. And, and City don't seem to have that. De Bruyne, I mean... <laughs> The goals he scored against Wolves earlier in the week were just in incredible. You know, that, that first three goals off his wrong foot. I mean, it's ridiculous to call his left foot his wrong foot because he's seen <laughs> his left foot is like Ronnie O'Sullivan's left arm at snooker, isn't it? It just seems to be as good as, as good as anybody else's stronger foot. It does seem crazy that he's not on them, but we can sit here and say that. But there are people within the four walls of Manchester City who know better than us and in the decision was made. And, and he, is, he doesn't take them all the time. Barely takes them at all, in fact. So... Who knows? We're, we're not really wants to question him. The one, the one thing I would say about De Bruyne is that he is. I mean, there was a debate, wasn't there, the other night on, on on another channel between Jamie Carragher and Michael Richards as to, as to City's greatest ever player. These, this current City generation are kind of standing on the shoulders of of the giants that went before them, before Guardiola arrived. That 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 spine of company: Yaya Toure, David Silva, Sergio Aguero. But. I think this current lot have probably taken it to a new level, haven't they? The, the style of the football they play, the quality they play, the goals they score, the things they win. And De Bruyne is probably the absolute the absolute kind of archetype of that generation of players. He's wonderful. Mm. Well, you, you, you talked about you know, penalty decisions there. You know, we talk about marginal gains in modern sport, don't we? I found it very interesting. There was a, there was a, um, a piece on social media, a thread from a, a psychology re researcher man named uh, Gilles Jordé, who broke down second by second the actions and consequences of both Liverpool and Chelsea managers in, in before that penalty shootout at, at Wembley on Saturday. It was quite interesting that Klopp had everything sorted within one minute, 45 seconds, and that was before Tuchel had even finished deciding on who he wanted to take the penalties. So you've got proactivity, neuroscience, brain training, whatever you want to call it. It's not just the ball game anymore, is it, Pat? 
No. I sensed that you were going to ask about this. In fact, you sent me a memo saying... Well, <laughs> Don't give away so, the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so I did do a bit of research uh, before, we, before we started. And uh, the, there's actually, a quite, it's quite funny, the thread that you're talking about by this Norwegian guy, which is very interesting. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm not sort of going to take the easy thing and poke fun at it. But somebody did. Somebody did a cod one of, 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 again, nine posts explaining why if Chelsea had won, Tuchel's would, would always have been the better um, a better strategy. But, yeah, it, it, it does make sense. The only thing he, he talked about, yes, being proactive, letting the players know, taking the pressure off them by laughing and joking. There's even a picture in it of, of the joke, he, you know, the witticism that he made to Virgil van Dijk, you know, just as the, the shootout was about to take place. In other words, methods of dissipating the nerves that cause people to freeze up and miss penalties. Yes, it, it, was, it, it was clever. The only thing I thought might, that I wanted to question was that all of this... One of the, the, the final advantage, marginal gain, that Klopp was supposed to have gained was choice of position on the halfway line, slightly closer to Klopp. But it also meant that doing things early and being proactive meant they had longer to stand and be nervous and to allow nerves to build up before they actually got around to taking penalty kicks. That was the only thing. But... Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, this kind of stuff is 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 fascinating. We talk about it. I've I've always had a, a theory about penalty shootouts, which is that the goalkeeper should dive. In other words, if it's a left-footed penalty taker, dive to your left because a, a player by and large won't open his body unless he has to. It's complete nonsense. I've looked again at the. I've really. I've been arguing it for 10, 15 years. Uh, but in recent years, in, 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 for example, just in that one shootout, more players opened their body than, than chose not to. Okay. Riyad Mahrez went with, the, with, 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 with his only foot, frankly. He does have a weaker foot. But my word, his strong one's quite good. But the, the goalkeeper took the decision to go, to go with my principle. But most of the time, if you followed my principle, you'd miss far more penalties than you otherwise would. Mm. I just, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. But can I just tell you one more thing about penalty shootouts? I was watching the cup final on television. And I was at a party. There were about 30 people there. Um, Not a rare occurrence, that is it, Pat? <laughs> I would say about 18 men and 12 women. And while watching the game, I have to confess that we're only five of us watching it because you feel if you're going to a party, you ought to spend some more time mingling than just glued to the screen. <laughs> so we weren't always watching it. When the penalty shootout started, all 30 people were huddled fervent round that screen. It's a terrible thought, isn't it, after all this time? And we've got to whisper it, that penalty shootouts might be better than football. <laughs> anyway, we move when on. When you say that, Tom? <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I mean, they're just great entertainment, aren't they? What, you know, I, I've, I've always been a fan of them, and I think pretty much whenever extra time starts in any football match, I think both sets of fans would take penalties there and then, and all neutrals want them. The idea that you wouldn't have them would is crazy to me, complete anathema. But the two points I'd make on, on, on the penalty shootout, one, of course, despite all of that quite convincing thread for, from your man, Gere Jordé, Klopp himself admitted that he almost ruined it by telling Mane to go the other way. Mane did open his body up 
uh, and and Mendy second guessed him. And then the other thing, from a Liverpool's point of view, despite all of that, it's still everything rests on Diogo Jota stepping up and having cojones of absolute steel to score the sixth penalty when a miss would have would have would have ended it for them. And it's probably the best penalty of the entire lot. In the end. What it boils down to is the, the strength of character and the composure and the will of the players taking the penalty. And you can't really measure that, can you? Yeah. Actually, if you're mentioning Yotta there, there's a second narrative for you. Liverpool finish at home to Wolves, uh, who struggled to get a point at home to Norwich on the Sunday. You know, a case of the X coming back again. Pat, with um, you know, the, one of the essences of modern management is the ability to to harness resources and, 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 you know, make clever selection decisions. How do you sense Klopp will deal with, you know, the, the pragmatic side of this week, which is, look, let's get the win at Southampton and let everything else take care of itself. And, you know, the, the injuries which are beginning to pile up a bit. Yes, the advantage Manchester City have, of course, is, is oh, sorry, the, the, the silver lining of Madrid is that they at least have clear heads, whereas Klopp has still has, not only is he the second favourite for the title, but he's got these problems that you've just described. I don't think he'll hesitate to do the right thing fitness-wise. In other words, rest Van Dijk. I may, you know, I may be wrong, he may not need resting, although he did, didn't have come off the field quickly in the cup final. So... I think that given what's, why do you build a squad, you know, if not to cater for situations like this and Liverpool, it, 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 it's probably the, true that Liverpool's second team, if, if there is such a thing uh, to their squad of 23, should be good enough to win a Premier League football match, given that they all appear to be... Have you noticed how when Liverpool changed their team, it's a bit like Manchester United under Ferguson, the style is completely unaffected. He can, he can put in Keita for um, Thiago, totally different players, and the style is completely unaffected. And so uh, that's what I think he'll do. I think he will be bold and make scientific decisions to produce footballing results. Yeah, you, you can see Simicas coming in in, in favour of, of uh, Robertson. Tony, what about Mo Salah? Where do you, you stand on this debate, which is rumbling on and has done for a couple of months, well, basically since the African Cup of Nations, that he's a victim of almost overuse. I think plenty of people would argue that. He probably would argue against you because, as you see, every time he doesn't play or every time he comes off, he looks absolutely steaming. This is a guy who just wants to score as many goals as possible and that means playing as many games as possible. The only thing, the only counter to that, I would say, is that I think, actually, he has one, one remaining ambition in mind for this season which is getting revenge over Real Madrid in a Champions League final so I, I think he it was quicker to come off at the weekend than he might ordinarily have been if that was the final game of the season or if there wasn't a Champions League final to, to play in a couple of weeks possibly the same for, for, for Van Dijk there's, there's, it seemed like protection was the order of the day uh, for both of them Salah's form actually has probably been off for a little while he looked unplayable earlier in the season and, and at times carried the team's as Paddy suggested, the strength of the Liverpool squad is now such that if, if certain players are underperforming, others step up and take the mantle. Luis Diaz has obviously been obvious example, incredible yeah. since arriving. And Sadio Mane stepped up as well, playing in that nine role, yeah. showing that he can he's, he's, he's as versatile as he is talented. 
So there are there are question marks. Is it overuse for Salah? Has he played too much football? Very likely. Are there? Is there a little bit of is things a little bit unsettled around his contract situation? Possibly that a little bit as well. But I think if he's fit and firing and starts the Champions League final in two weeks, then I don't think anyone will mind that much about any of the above. Yeah. One thing that struck me also at the weekend was almost an example of the humanity of the game, where you know Salah invited the former Egyptian player, Momen Zakaria, who's suffering from ALS, into that dressing room at Wembley to celebrate with the team. I thought that was a fantastic gesture. Talking about Liverpool doing things the right way, Jordan Henderson, Paddy, you know, yeah. we've seen some, some great captains down the years, some terrific leaders. You know, this might get laughed out of court from by some people, but I think he is an absolutely magnificent leader. What I'm not think? laughing. I'm not laughing. I agree with you. I think he's the the strength of character he has shown at sometimes suppressing his own game. I mean, people sometimes don't notice he's, he, he can pass a football, you know, over long distances. He's a very good long passer, but he, he submer- sometimes submerges you know, his footballing ambitions for the cause of the team. There was a very nice, in addition, there was a very nice picture of him commiserating with Mason Mount after the cup mm. final, which I noticed on Twitter. And 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 it's that, in a way, also typified the character because he's also a teammate of Mason Mounts in his part-time job with the England team. So, yeah, no, you won't get any argument from me on that, Mike. I think, in fact, there's been a case when we talk about the Footballer of the Year vote, which you and I, and I I don't know if you're a member of the FWA, Tony, but we, we, we do every, every year and, and we torture our brains to choose the right person. And I think we're going to touch on that in another part of this podcast, but I've been tempted a couple of times when you've not been sure which Liverpool player to go for, you know, because, uh, you know, Mo Salah and Sadio, Sadio Mane and Virgil van Dijk have all been fundamental. Alisson, you know, you know, there have been lots of players. And you, and you think, well, right, I'll just go for Jordan Henderson because he symbolises the team, the, the unit. And once or twice I've been on the point of, of voting for him as footballer of the year for that reason so that's how important I think he is to Liverpool yes you know the the, the Klopp system could probably but my word that you wouldn't want to be without him for a big game yeah that's for sure look at this collectively if we could Tony it's a bit of a mayor culpa here I suppose are we guilty of overselling this concept of the quadruple because you know by doing so, we risk underplaying the magnitude of the achievement, don't we? Because, listen, let's be honest, if they win the Champions League, a cup treble would be extraordinary, even if the Premier League slips away. Yeah, it would. It's incredible to go so deep and for so long. I think what actually surprised me a little bit at the weekend was to hear that Chelsea have played more games than Liverpool this season. By the end of the season, Liverpool will have overtaken them by, by, by one. But it's just a sign that when you when you when you're a club playing at the top level, success is one very difficult to come by, but two often takes an awful lot of games. I mean that's that's a really simple thing to say, but Liverpool's successes under Klopp to this point have come by to a large to a large extent sacrificing the cups, the, the League Cup and the FA Cup. He, he's he kind of 
he's gone deep in the League Cup a couple of times almost by accident and never in the FA Cup. This season, we've talked about Liverpool's squad depth repeatedly on, on this pod. This is the strongest Liverpool squad I've probably ever seen, certainly in Klopp's era. And I think there has been an awareness. I think a couple of players mentioned this after the FA Cup final on Saturday. There's been an awareness in the squad that this is the case. They made a conscious effort they're going to go for everything I think in previous seasons it's been very much a case of well let's have a let, let's put out some of the younger players in the Cups and see how far we go certainly Liverpool have committed to Cups earlier this season in a strange way and I think back to 2001 when the club achieved another another Cup treble the two domestic Cups and the, and the Europe what was then the UEFA Cup under Gerard Houllier but they were nowhere near anything in the league in a, in a strange way, even if Liverpool win three cups this season, the real achieve, the, the, the standout achievement will still be getting so close in the league, which is a crazy thing to say. But I think you probably you probably follow my point. Yeah. To come so close to winning all four titles with football as it is, with Manchester City as they are, and the competition in Europe so strong, would be remarkable. I don't think anyone's surprised by what Klopp and this team do anymore, though. Are they? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there are very few things that surprise us in the modern game. Now, Pat, you know, we've been around a while. I don't think I've ever seen a report, and here's a report, of a player, in this case, Andreas Christensen, basically not wanting to play in the FA Cup final. You know, he he made himself unavailable, according to what seems a pretty authoritative report in the Daily Mail, on the morning of the game. I find that astonishing. Yes, yeah, so do I. And uh, um, I, I don't know the details of it. I don't know. I don't know if 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 you know um, why. Well, there's an but obvious it, inf- there's an obvious inference, I suppose. That he's One, going I think, somewhere. I th- well, he's going to Barcelona, isn't yeah. he? And yeah. so, and you know, it seems that, that his people, in inverted commas, are saying what well, he didn't feel that well towards the end of the week. But even so, I, I just find that. Well, uh, you know, it's remarkable. Up, it's up there with Kepa at the same club refusing to come off the the park. Coming off, come off the park. Now you've got mm. somebody refusing to go on. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's it. it, it I, I, I'm like you. I'm sort of kind of lost for words. But I, I don't don't think it's anything uh, any worse than what Kepa did. And he should have been thrown out of that club straight away. But that you know, this is modern football, and you get. You get strange decisions. It what it you know clearly, you, you suspect it might be driven by those advising him. But there there are other you know conspiracy theories that have occurred to me in in, in famous cases of famous footballers refusing to take penalties, and you wonder if again there's agent influence in that. If I, you know, if I was a completely cynical agent, I would say, don't take a penalty when you're playing for your national team in the country, because if you take it, people say, well, you know, he should be able to put away a penalty. And if you miss it, you're advertising pizza, you know? (laughs) So it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the agent led cynicism in this game, I suppose, and I'm sort of thinking on my feet now in answer to your question, it's it's perhaps going to cause more and more things that cause guys like you and me who come, well, you and I, you're younger than me, but we both come from a different era in which that could not have happened. Mm. And I think, well, we we know and talk about 
almost institutionalised intolerance, don't we, Tony, in football? Again, what did you make? It seems that Mason Mount, okay, he missed a penalty. You know, it's not a capital offence. And he's been arguably Chelsea's best player this season, you know, from, from my point of view. You know, people are getting sucked into this and it's getting worse, isn't it? The whole idea that, oh, there must be a, a scapegoat, there must be blame attached to someone. Yeah, I'd like to think that I'd like to think that trend is reversing. I like, because I mean, this is, again, it, it's a social media construct, and we can sound like three old dinosaurs here. Um, well, we are, aren't we? Well, speak for yourself, Mike. I'm kind of a, <laughs> kind of a baby saw, really. Um, <laughs> although, very, I'd like to think I'm catching you up quite quickly. Yeah, I think it's just that you can get sucked into that social media vortex. You can go down rabbit holes all you like, can't you? And you'll find horrific stuff everywhere you look if you want to. You'll also find counterpoints to that. I don't think anyone in even vaguely a half mind would blame Mason Mount for missing a penalty in the same way you wouldn't blame Bukayo Saka and, 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 and Marcus Rashford and Jaden Sancho for missing them in, in the Euros final mm, last cool. year. Um, Absolutely. It's just crazy. Um, and I think, you know, the people around Mason Mount, we know he's got a strong kind of family unit. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the squad at Chelsea for all, their, <laughs> for all, for all the fact that it's, it's not perfect. There are strong characters there. Thomas Tuchel's a great coach. He has good people around him. I don't think, you know, he can look on social media if he wants and he can find all sorts of terrible stuff, but I suspect he probably won't. There are reasons that Chelsea lost the cup final. They're not all because Mason Mount missed a penalty. Let's look at Tottenham, if we could, please, Pat. You know, there is a, a sense of a, of, a, of a club suddenly refreshed. It's been a, a, a season of very strange mood swings, a bit like almost in Conti's in, image, isn't it? Yes, uh, precisely. I think due to the, the ambition and whatever you might say about Daniel Levy, the, the commitment of, of the chairman of the club, if you put that together with the mercurial nature of the coaches he keeps choosing, Pochettino accepted, although even he had to be had to move. You know, you're you're going to have you're going to have this kind of attitude. You're going. I mean, personally, I don't like it when Conte says, "Listen, I'll go. I don't need this. I'll go." I, and he's he's made those kind of noises, you know, shrouded but 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 pretty obvious throughout the season. I don't like the sound of it myself. I wouldn't if I was a Tottenham fan paying good money to fill that lovely stadium every um, every two weeks so yes but the but the the fact is that he has produced with a not brilliant team overall okay yeah two fantastic forwards in Kane and Son a, a very underrated player in Lucas in my opinion a, a guy who would start in my teams every time but that apart it's not a great side it's not as good as Chelsea's squad and yet it's up there fighting for the prize of, of the Champions League. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that Tottenham's fans, who after all pay for the whole thing, are very pro-Conte pro and, and, and are quite happy to, you know, that the thought that he's going to be there next season with a bit of luck in high-level competition. I mean, his outbursts during the season are all—they all seem pretty tactical, just to remind the, the manager, the, the owner, that he wants a bucket load of cash in the summer. Mm -hmm. Conte kind of follows that Mourinho trajectory, doesn't he, of, of wanting yes. to be places where he can spend a lot of money. Yes. He tends to then deliver the results that that, that justify that. I mean, the one thing I say about him at Spurs is that he has got them playing in a certain way, 
again, everyone knows the roles. A bit like you were saying about Klopp and Liverpool. They play that way. They have three centre-backs. They have marauding wing-backs, two sitters in midfield, and then a front three dominated by Kane and Son, who just cause mayhem. That's the way they play. That's the way they'll play next season, regardless of who comes in. Some of the names may change. Actually, some of them definitely have to if they want to improve and, <laughs> and compete at the high level Paddy refers to. But the point, and also I'd say that, you know, if, if Conte wants to point at, at signings, then he can point at Bentancur and Kulasevic, who've both been absolutely brilliant for them since arriving. Have, yes. um, Kulasevic, who apparently was very ill, but managed to get off the bench yesterday to play 20 minutes, unlike Andreas Christensen for Chelsea. The one problem Conte's got is that he's, you know, we've seen what he's done well in one game against Man City and two games against Liverpool this season. And obviously they battered Arsenal recently, but they needed a really soft penalty to beat a team set up in a low block yesterday. And the challenge for that team and the way they play that football is actually getting the better of teams who sit back and defend and don't leave an acre of space for Kane and Son to take advantage of. Mm. Well, let's dwell on that soft penalty. I'd be a bit stronger than that, actually. That's sort of, it was ludicrous. <laughs> hey, we're um, going to fall out here. <laughs> Carry on. Right. Okay, Paddy, you try and convince me that oh, okay. that, that was a, the penalty and VAR did its job because, frankly, in my view, it was a nonsense because Ashley Barnes was so close. Yes. He had no time to get his arm out of the way. There was no apparent appeal, yet, you know, the Jobsworth syndrome kicked in, the referee gets a voice in his ear, and essentially a penalty of the utmost significance was awarded. Wrongly, in my view, argue against it, please. I, I, yeah, I agree with everything you've said, but what you've not said is why he got, why he should have got his arm out of the way. Answer: It was in what is known as an unnatural position. I think it was a perfect. I, I wasn't uh, at all surprised that it was given. I, I I do take your point that normally in far less clear cut situations than that, players appeal not cynically but instinctively, and and you're quite right. In in this case, it wasn't so. But if you have uh, guidance on unnatural position of the arm, that by fulfills the criteria perfectly. I mean, what was he doing? Imitating an aeroplane? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I suppose the wider question, Tony, is is VAR itself. Again, I know this is a, you know a really tedious subject now, but <laughs> you know it's basically. I think it belongs in the seventh circle of football hell. What about you? <laughs> I probably wouldn't go that far. Maybe the sixth. No, I mean, I, I, kind of, I, kind of, I kind of see both of your points. I guess I would say that I would agree with many people saying that's never a penalty in a million years, but also agree with the people pointing out that according to the current rules, which Paddy has just described, it probably is a penalty. So I see why it's given. My own personal view is that the rule is wrong. And therefore, it shouldn't be given. But you can't you can't necessarily blame the officials yeah. for giving it. You see, if the the problem with the unnatural, what, what is natural? Is it natural to put your hands in front of your private parts at a free kick? That's not natural. We don't all walk down the street like that. Um, but it is natural <laughs> if, if a ball's flying towards you. And and similarly, it is. I, I suppose it's natural to try and make yourself big when somebody's shooting. So if that provision did not exist. And I completely understand uh, the point of view of people who like, you know, you, Mike, and, and you, Tony, who, who don't think it should. Uh, if it didn't exist, 
then that would have been fine and and we could have it would have been a nil nil but um it does so mm. well you know the the end result is that that burnley are now back in the relegation zone mm. they're at villa on thursday tony then at home to newcastle on the final day i suppose the question is where and how will they save themselves good question i mean my instinct is that they only need one point from those two games. We may talk about Leeds-Brentford in a moment. I think Leeds will lose that game, which means that Burnley need only one point from two games. The question then is how do they get it and what do they do? Leaves you in a dilemma, doesn't it? Especially with that extra game. They play Villa. They, 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 they went for it against Villa a couple of weeks ago at home on the back of a really good run and they got picked off. My instinct is that they'll play a bit more conservatively on Thursday. Villa, again, team, nothing really to play for other than a few extra quid by moving up a couple of places. Steven Gerrard may potentially rotate a bit, saving some of his stronger players for the weekend. Yeah. Um, and unlike certain teams, I, I, I think when Villa start using their squad members, their, their quality drops off a bit. They don't have the strength yes. and depth. But I think Burnley will go direct, put pressure on a defence that isn't always the most secure. And if they sneak, if they sneak ahead, it may be that they then sit back in that block and try and get the win. I, I, I just cannot, feel, I, I mean, who knows what happened on, on the last day of the season. On current form and the current state of the mood around the place, I cannot see Leeds beating Brentford on the last day of the season. So if Burnley beat Villa on Thursday, then I think they'll be safe and won't necessarily need anything from the Newcastle game at the weekend. But it's the end of the season. Anything can happen. And I'm wrong most of the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Brentford-Leeds game, Paddy, there's, is going to be a spicy one. They've got long memories at that uh, bus stop in Hounslow, haven't they? You know, Leeds players, Stuart Dallas and Liam Cooper, were filmed basically singing about Thomas Frank and, and deriding Brentford after Leeds had won the championship a couple of years ago. It's already been mentioned in dispatches by Ivan Tony. Thomas Frank has laughed it off, you know, behind that painted smile. Who knows? Um <laughs> It's gonna, that, this one actually is probably a really good example of, of why players should be kept off social media because it, yeah, it, 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 it could be a big one, wouldn't it? Especially as we saw uh, at the weekend at Everton that Brentford are, uh, are not on the, in the deck chairs. You know, they are not. They are very cognizant of, of how important it is to them to be in the Premier League and they don't want to waste a second of it. I think they will play till the last kick and I think they're, they're a very good team, particularly on the attacking the attacking aspects. Uh, I think Ivan Tony's been sensational this season. And so I do fear for Leeds, yes, partly for that. I think since you mentioned, you know, motivation, the behaviour of, I suppose, Everton fans in letting off fireworks at three o'clock in the morning outside the Brentford uh, team's hotel appears to have worked well, doesn't it, Everton fans? Yes, it's backfired, but, <laughs> you know, re really, when you think about it, it tells us a lot about the sense of entitlement of football fans, that they can wake up an entire district of Liverpool just... You, you, you know, children, frightened children with fireworks, you know, and do all that kind of stuff just because it's important for them to get a good result the following day. It, 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 it kind of, that and the booing of 
of Prince William, who's a Villa fan, for goodness sake. I mean, are Liverpool supporters really that stupid? That kind of stuff just makes you think, who do they think they are? It's football, you know? Grow up. But uh, anyway, luckily, Brentford made sure that Everton did not profit from that and went out and beat them. Okay, with the help of a card or two. But I've, I've I, I got great respect for Brentford, and I think uh, that's bad news for Leeds. Yeah, yeah, Tony. Obviously, you know your your daily diet is of coaches and with coaches. Give me your appreciation please of the job that Thomas Frank has done I thought it was really interesting in the way that he responded to the first sending off at Goodison Park you know essentially going to a, a back three playing two two holding midfield players as as part of that three you know he's a thinking manager isn't he or thinking coach he is a thinking coach we've we've, we've done some work with him at Coach's Voice and the first thing I can tell you is that he is not a man short on confidence um <laughs> But he also coaches with the he also behaves and coaches with the freedom of a man who doesn't need it. Mm. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about Giovanni van Bronckhorst and maybe maybe in the same in the same tones. It enables him to keep a clearer head and make good decisions more often. He's also been a coach for a very long time. You know, we talk about this every time I'm on. I make the point about you know it's just a, it, you know. It's just getting those out. Every coach I speak to ask them for advice for young coaches coming into the game, and they all say the same thing. Do your hours on the pitch. Coach kids, coach grassroots, get experience at lower levels, and that will just stand you in brilliant stead. Frank has done all of that. So he comes into England as a relative as a relative unknown, a decent pedigree back in, in Denmark, but a relative unknown, and has shown himself to be a coach of the absolute highest calibre. It's, it's so sorry, difficult. Sorry, Tony, to, to in, interrupt, but is this why increasingly, and I suppose it started with Wenger, Mourinho, people like that, is this why increasingly coaches are people who haven't wasted their 20s being star footballers that <laughs> have been, you know, have actually been learning the game Paddy, it's rather a than trade. building reputation. Is that why they've become, uh, why they're, they are better coaches? Arrigo Saki is another. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an entirely different trade. You know, the one thing that when I speak to coaches who have played at a high level, the first thing they say is it's completely different. You have to start mm-hmm. again. And so inevitably, and we talk about this a lot, people like Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard are learning on the go in their mid to late 30s. Mm. They're not coaching grassroots teams at 19, 20. And Frank has done that. And the one thing I would say about him in, in the Premier League is that he's actually he's shown tactical adaptation as well. He's very flexible, exactly as, as Mike described in the Everton game yesterday. But this is a guy who's taken a club up to the Premier League for the first time. Granted, this club is run incredibly well. Absolute mm. template for how clubs at that level should be run in terms of sustainable success probably got up to the Premier League at the right time. Had they come up a season or two earlier, it may have been a bit too early. But recruitment has been brilliant. And if you look at where the other two promoted teams have finished this season, it just underlines what a remarkable job Thomas Frank and Brentford, who has still got a chance of finishing in the top 10, by the way, giving them that little bit more motivation the next weekend. What an amazing job they've done. Challenge is always repeating it again, of course. You know, some of their players, will, will Christian Eriksen have the same impact next season, if indeed he's still there? Will someone come in for Ivan Tony, who, like you say, has been brilliant this season, despite making the odd faux pas outside of the game? But it's just, you know, he's just he's just a brilliant manager. I'd be if I was a big club, I'd be looking at Thomas Frank, but Brentford may not be fashionable enough for him to get that attention. If we're talking about coach education, Paddy, Frank Lampard's is certainly accelerating at a pace, isn't it? <laughs> yes. um, 
I, you know, he's he's got a bit of stick for actually giving a, a sort of limp-wristed high five, if that's possible, to to Rondon after his um, <clears throat> interesting cameo appearance yes. uh, at the end. But Everton are at home to Palace on Thursday. Yeah, that's their chance to still get out of this, isn't it? Yeah, if they can keep uh, 11 players on the field. I felt sorry, as did Thomas Frank, sportingly, for the young lad who got sent off because, you know, that was not a cynical uh, no. offence. I'm, I'm not saying the referee was wrong. I'm just saying that, it, you know, he was a, he was unlucky, the young lad, uh, particularly as Everton had been denied a penalty about 10 seconds earlier. Uh, a really clear penalty, but, of course, you never get those, you, you know, um, handling offences but uh, I really do wish those were always given but yeah they've just got to you've got to show more discipline and Frank in my opinion I I, I love Frank as a person anyone who's ever met him would, would say he's one of the nicest people you've ever met in football but personally I think you should um give people like Rondon a clip around the ear not a pat on the head I mean that is this graceful anti-professional professionalism you know you were, we were rightly talking about Andreas Christensen not being on the field well going off the field for trying to injure I'm not, you know okay it was instinctive but for, for doing something that could injure an opponent and uh, you know as ugly as that tackle that he did that's not professional either you know that's that's disgraceful as well with the young lad you know just one of those things nothing wrong with that but uh, yeah just don't play the crowd you know keep calm it's a football match the crowd noise is is as likely to inspire the opposition as 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 Everton found yesterday as it is to make your team play better it's interesting actually we, we, we should really do this on another podcast you know when the, there's the lockdown everyone said ah oh, football's changed there's no home advantage anymore look at the amount of away wins do you know i get the impression it hasn't changed at all since the crowds came back mm, and i think they, i think the everton they, i think the everton crowd have got them a couple of results or helped well they got them the, they got them the early goal for sure mm. because they pushed them forward you know from the start and they are a good of course they're a good crowd you know but right from God, when was it they played Bayern Munich in the European Cup semi-final? It's one of the best crowds I've ever been in, uh, forty-eight thousand at Goodison. But you know they've always been a good crowd. Yeah, that's sure. That that's true. But don't play the crowd. Don't you know the, the cliche? Don't play the occasion. Play the football match. And, and and if they do that, yes, they should beat Palace. Yeah. Well, while while that psychodrama was going on at Goodison, there was a, a terrific a women's FA Cup final unfolding at Wembley. Record crowd, a terrific game. Children in that crowd. Tony, in broad terms, you know, I know we really should concentrate on the football, but let's look at the bigger picture first. Women's football now is here to stay. That's obvious. And that is as it should be. Yeah, it's actually a great summer to have a a women's Euros when there's when there's nothing else getting in the nothing way, else. Uh, which is which is actually kind of serendipitous in the main, but brilliant. You're right. We're seeing we're seeing proper statement crowds, aren't we? That was a statement crowd at Wembley at the weekend. We saw the the game in the new Camp, didn't we, for Barcelona Real Madrid, which had ninety two, yeah. almost ninety two thousand. Mm. Same, um, same for same for the Wolfsburg game. Yeah, yes. uh, phenomenal. So I think there is the challenge for the women's game is to produce crowds like that more regularly, but 
momentum is building, coverage is improving, the football is getting better, and you've got characters as well. Sam Kerr's a brilliant player. There are, there are actually, I could name 10 brilliant players at the moment, more than that. Emma Hayes is a fantastic figurehead, both for Chelsea and for women's football. Uh, her, um, her analysis during the men's Euros for, for ITB was brilliant. And I think we're, we're, I mean, there are always going to be people who just knock it and just it's just not for them. There's not much you can do about them. But I think there are more fence-sitters who are beginning to look at women's football and say, hang on a minute, I think we're onto something here, which can only be good. Mm, yeah, I, th- I think also you know, we, we've got to stop judging the women's game in the context of the men's game. You know, it was inevitable that after that win, there have been pieces written, oh, uh, Emma Hayes, you know, the least she deserves is a championship club in the men's game. You know, I got to know her pretty well recently. And she doesn't need that validation. Uh, I think she'd do a really good job in in the men's game. When you look at her, Pat, Mm. you see, I think, an innovative coach. Yeah. Anything else? You see, you know, yeah, character. I mean, I see. I, I I love her sense of humor. When I I think Sam Kerr was the uh, women's footballer of the year of yes. our women's footballer of the year, and I was at the the event and 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 Emma Hayes, uh, she couldn't be at the the dinner, but she contributed a video, and she was basically saying. Uh, finish your dinner and get home you've got work tomorrow uh, and, and and it was it just sort of reminded me of, of that was real traditional sort of coach player banter you know it was it was uh, she is a, a very attractive personality and certainly you know having a characterful manager helps it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or man I, the, the only reason I don't think it's patronising to say she should get a championship club, it's, it's, it's only my personal point of view. I think football should be asexual or agenderal. I don't see why a woman shouldn't play with men. My dream is actually to, for there to be mixed football, three kinds of football, women's football, men's football, and mixed football, six and five, or three and two if it's a five-a-side team, in which the men and women at, at all levels are playing together with the same expectations. That's what I'd like to see. And I think it should apply to managers. It's already happened, I think, in France. I think uh, a League One team was uh, managed by a woman. She's no longer there, but uh, I I would like to see that. And also, I don't know what Emma earns at uh, Chelsea, and it's none of my business. Why shouldn't uh, female coaches be in line for the top jobs financially? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the key is that that women's football is no longer a, a fashion statement uh, yeah. or a minority it's interest. Yeah. It's a vital part of the football landscape. Yes. Um, and I think we should admire it for its technical quality, its relatable personalities, and actually the drama that we saw at Wembley on, on Sunday. You know, there are things that can be improved. More clubs need to up their promotional game, it seems to me. But... Let's just concentrate on the football and everyone benefits. In the meantime, I just want to thank Paddy and Tony for their input. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Listener.